0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to
1: act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
0: Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. There is a wealth of both current and future missions to track down and study planets orbiting distant stars known as exoplanets. But what does it take to launch an exoplanet observatory into space? And what can we learn from doing so? One such spacecraft is CHAOPS, a European Space Agency mission that has just begun collecting data. We spoke to the mission's project scientist, Kate Isaac, to find out more about CHAOPS's science objectives and what she hopes it might discover.
1: My name's Kate Isaac. I'm the k project scientist. I work at uh, ESTEC, which is ESA's technical heart in the Netherlands, ESA being the European Space Agency.
0: Thanks, thanks for joining me today, Kate. Um,
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: <laughs> the reason that we're speaking um, is, is because of the k mission, which which launched in December 2019. Um, and it's, it's terribly exciting because it's starting to collect its... First, first science and, and its, it's uh, first images and things like that. But I suppose it's worth um, just starting off talking a bit about the mission itself. What, what is the, what, first of all, what does the acronym actually stand for and, and what will the KOPs mission actually do?
1: The acronym k stands for Characterising Exoplanet Satellite. And it's the first of ESA's uh, exoplanet missions, which is dedicated to the study of exoplanets. So planets orbiting stars other than our own planets outside our, our solar system. It's uh, designed to search for transits of known planets that are orbiting bright stars using the technique of ultra high precision photometry. Now, it's a characterizing mission, as the name suggests, and by that I mean we will be doing a first step characterization, a very ba- basic ca- uh, characterization, whereby we measure very precisely the sizes of the planets, which we then can combine with the mass. And mass and volume gives us density, so the bulk density of the planet. This enables us to co- uh, put constraints on the composition and internal structure of the planet. And with large samples of planets orbiting different types of stars at different orbital periods, we're able to study the formation and uh, evolution of planets. And this informs us on the uh, evolution of exoplanets and, of course, of our own solar system. The mission's a collaboration with Switzerland, which leads a consortium of 10 other ESA member states, which all have key roles in the the mission. It's a small satellite, as you may have seen, small both in terms of size, about one and a half by one and a half by one and a half metres. And also, relatively speaking, for a space mission, it has a relatively small cost attached to it. This means that The who does what in the mission, so who is responsible for what, is a little bit different from typical ESA missions, which you may be familiar with, so missions like Herschel or missions that are coming up like uh, Euclid or even Rosetta that uh, you would have heard a lot about in in previous um, Sky at Night uh, interviews.
0: Um, I, I suppose one of the questions that a lot of people would ask would be, there's, there's so much being done now to, to study exoplanets. And it seems like there's, there's kind of, a, it almost seems like there's a new mission launched every month, <laughs> although that's not actually the case. Um, uh, so how, how will k actually stand out from the crowd? What, what is it actually going to bring to the, to the exoplanet study?
1: The key thing about chaos is it's a follow-up mission. And by this, I mean that unlike missions like the Knesset's Koro mission or NASA's Kepler or Tess, uh, and TESS missions that were designed to search for planets, search and find exoplanets, Keops will follow up and focus on known exoplanets. So planet searches have revealed two previously unknown populations, so-called hot Jupiters, so puffy, gassy planets orbiting very close to their host star, which makes them hot, puffy like, uh, and gassy like, uh, like Jupiter, as well as many smaller planets between sizes of Earth to Neptune, of which there are no analogues uh, in our solar system. Now, it's more difficult to measure accurately the sizes of small planets, as one can imagine, because their signatures are generally smaller. And this is what Kops will be able to, to do. It'll be very efficient at doing this, in fact, because if we know when and where to point, we know, we know the, uh, the host star that we'll be observing has an exoplanet. We can then catch the planets as they tran- transit their host star. And we can keep coming back to build up the signal to noise on the planet and then to make the precise measurements that we need in order to be able to determine their size. We'll discover a few uh, new planets in known planetary systems, that's clear, and that's very exciting, but it's not the main objective of uh, k Something which will be very interesting is we'll be able to identify the smaller planets which have thin atmospheres, sort of like that of Earth, and so excellent candidates for follow-up with missions such as the James Webb Space Telescope and also future extremely large ground-based telescopes where we'll be able to characterise the atmospheres in detail. So much more detailed measurements than chaos will be able to make, but chaos is an important uh, step in this uh, process.
0: It's mind-blowing when, when you consider that we're actually able to create spacecraft that can that can do all this um, so how, how, how actually does does k operate and what's what sort of technique will it actually use in order to just to, to study um exoplanets
1: absolutely it's it is mind-blowing that we can observe and we can look find the fingerprints or the imprints of uh, planets outside our, our solar system and to do this we use the technique of high-precision transit photometry and we infer the presence of a presence of a transiting exoplanet so that's a planet moving across our direct line of sight of the telescope to the star and this is what makes it transiting so we're not actually measuring the signal from the planet itself but uh, a trace a trace of it in, in effect a, a shadow that's caught, that's uh, created by the by the exoplanet. This is the same t- technique which has been used both on the ground and from space, on, in other space missions to uh, identify of, many of the 4, 000, more than 4,000 known exoplanets. What we do is to monitor the output of the host star before, during and after the transit and so measure the light curve of the, the star During the transit, the planet blocks a fraction of the light from the star. The amount depends on the relative sizes of the planet uh, and the the star, or more precisely, the areas of their disks. And the size of the dip is a measure of the ratio of this. So if we know the size of the star, we can get uh, the size of the planet. Just to fix ideas, the size of the dip for Jupiter transiting the sun, if we could observe this, would be about 1%. And for the Earth, it would be about 0.01%. So, in order to measure precisely the, the sizes of planets, we need to be able to measure the precision or to measure the light curves to a precision better than this. So, this puts the, the limits on KOPS's uh, performance requirements. So, tens of parts per million on time scales of a few hours, the few hours being set by the duration of the transit the few tens of parts per million set by the depth of the transit because if you have a certain depth you need to have the noise level at a fraction of the size of the, uh, the depth. So we have high precision with, K, uh, with uh, K-OPS and high cadence and so with this, um, with this we'll be able to be collecting data points at a rate of one per minute, and we can use this to study not only exoplanets but also stellar activity, so the host stars themselves as well as solar system objects. Something interesting hopping back to exoplanets that we'll be able to do is to measure the light curves of stars over the full orbit of a number of exoplanets, the so-called phase curves, and with this we'll be able to study the atmospheres and clouds on, for example, hot Jupiters and see how they change over the orbital period.
0: Um the uh, spacecraft must be equipped with quite a lot of um, incredible science instruments in order to be able to carry out all these observations and, and send, send back the data. So, yeah, how, how exactly is the space, spacecraft equipped to do, to do all this?
1: Yeah, this is very interesting. We actually have one single perfectly formed instrument. It's an ultra-high precision photometer. The instrument is built around a single uh, uh, 10, uh, 1024 by 1024 pixel Uh, a frame transfer CCD, which operates over the wavelength range of about 330 to 1100 nanometers. The CCD is sitting at the focal plane of a telescope which has an effective uh, primary mirror diameter of about 30 centimeters. So this is small compared to ground-based telescopes, but it's perfectly suited for the purposes of um, KOPS. Now, what's key for us is the the stability and the precision of the measurements that we can make. And the mission and the instrument have been designed with very high stability in mind. So to be insensitive to changes in temperature, uh, for example. It's also very important to minimize the noise that comes into the instrument from or comes into the signal, rather, from the instrument and the environment. And so this is impacted on the design of our electronics and also the baffling of the telescope to keep out stray light from the, the Earth, as an example. And in this way, we're able to reach the precisions of tens of parts per million on the timescales of transits, which is what we need and what we're after.
0: Whereabouts will the spacecraft be located? Will it actually be orbiting Earth?
1: Absolutely, and uh, you you can actually uh, see Kaops if, if you know where to, to look with a with a with a telescope. And this has been this has been done. So Kaops is in an in a orbit at about seven hundred kilometers ab- above the Earth. This is a, this orbit has a duration of around a hundred uh, minutes. And it's a little bit higher of an orbit than the Hubble Space Telescope, but significantly lower than, for example, a geostationary uh, uh, satellite. Now, the orbit is sun-synchronous and follows the so-called dawn-dusk terminator, which means it's possible to put the sun or to keep the sun permanently at the backside of the spacecraft. And this is very important to minimise stray light, which I mentioned as being a potential source of noise. We need to remove as much as possible noise from the chaos measurements, and our orbit happens to enable us to to do this. Not by chance, I should uh, should say.
0: (laughs) Um, how, How far away are the targets that it's actually going to be be
1: studying? Well, k targets are uh, exoplanets orbiting bright stars, so typically F, G, K and M dwarfs. And we focused on bright stars because these are those for which we'll be able to determine the masses of the planets using Doppler or radio velocity measurements, which you, you may be familiar with, from the ground. And by bright, I mean stars which have V-band magnitudes up to 12, V-band magnitude of 12 or 13, maybe a little bit uh, fainter, so out to a few hundred uh, a few hundred light years, depending on the spectral type of the star. So in the big scheme of things, relatively close by.
0: What sort of information do, do scientists back on Earth receive from the mission?
1: Well, first of all, they need to choose the targets to, to observe. And I think that's an important thing which maybe I can uh, touch on, because the observing time on k is split between the science team that's part of, that's part of the k consortium and also an ESA-run guest observers programme. So the scientists at large can apply through a competitive po- process to observe with k which I think is a very exciting opportunity. Now, the science team has spent the last five years shaping their science programmes and selecting their list of targets according to various science themes and topics which they've decided to focus on. These are improving the mass-radius relationship of exoplanets, starting to characterise the atmospheres of planets, looking in detail at transit light curves, and exploring and searching for new planets. There's, of course, the opportunity to do serendipitous uh, observations of other sorts of targets, stellar physics, solar system objects. Um, so I think there's the opportunity for, for many people to get involved with, with Kops. The data that they will receive um, is, is, is quite broad. There'll be a number of so-called data products that uh, scientists will be able to access. And these range from the raw images from the instrument itself to fully processed light curves that are produced by the data reduction pipeline that is used to correct and calibrate the, the data properly we'll also have a data from a wide range of sensors in the instrument and on the te- on the satellite which can be used to do something called detrending which is important in exoplanet science and that enables scientists to remove time varying signals that come from the satellite or from the from the instrument now the data will be available from the Keops mission archive but it'll be subject to a proprietary period which gives the scientists that have Spent uh, a lot of time uh, shaping the program of the of the mission, and also putting in observing proposals to capitalize on their data. But then it'll be available for all to access through the through the archive.
0: Um, the mission is, is actually already underway as as we're speaking. And um, one of the things that uh, really caught my eye over the past month or so was the the initial images. Um, and one of the things I was really uh, intrigued to, to learn was that the the images that the first images that came back were blurry but they were initially blurry it, was, it wasn't like some sort of Hubble Hubble error you know <laughs> um why were those initial images kind of purposely blurry
1: that's very that's a very interesting point yes they were indeed purposely blurred perfectly blurred I think is how we like to, to refer to it <laughs> and this is a, t- a common technique which is used uh, in exoplanet transit uh, photometry and what we do is to defocus the image in order to spread the signal from the star over a large number of pixels or relatively large number of pixels on our CCD and this makes us less sensitive to small changes in the direction in which the keops telescope is pointing so we're stable to so called less susceptible to so called jitter in the pointing of the satellite and also less sensitive to small variations in the response of individual pixels on the CCD. So it's a well-established uh, technique for um, getting high-precision, very high-precision photometry. The shape of the, uh, uh, the uh, individual stars is, uh, is an interesting one, as you, as you allude to. It's, it's triangular, In the images are triangular in shape, and this is due to the way in which the mirror is supported. The primary mirror is supported, which puts its imprint on the onto the images of chaos. But we can we can uh, deal with that in the data processing.
0: Um, I mean, it, since its launch, um, what sort of um, data has it been collecting, and um, what has it been doing? Really, I mean, has, has it made any discoveries uh, just yet?
1: Well, we're in, still in the very early days of the mission since. Uh, uh, in the period between early January and mid-March, we spent a very intensive period commissioning the satellite and the, and the instrument. And by that, I mean that the teams responsible for the spacecraft, the instrument, for the Mission Operations Centre and the Science Operations Centre together with ESA were working very hard to confirm that Kaops was working as we expected and as we need, and that it could be operated as required. And quite some time was also dedicated to determining how well the instrument was performing, how stable it was, and how accurately and precisely we're able to measure these light curves that I mentioned before and from which we'll be able to get the the transit depths and the sizes of of planets. Now, During this period, we were able to observe a couple of very interesting uh, transiting targets to exercise chaos, shall we say. First was a transit of KELT-11b which is an eight-hour-long transit of a puffy, gaseous uh, planet, which is about 30% larger than, than Jupiter. And it's orbiting its host star uh, in an orbit which is much closer to the, to the host star than it is to Mercury. And the measurements that we were able to, to uh, make were five times more accurate than those that were made from the ground, sort of illustrating the potential of um, chaos. We also made some very interesting observations of 55 Cancri e, which is a, uh, an exoplanet you may have heard of, a couple of times larger in size than Earth. Again, a short-period planet, and uh, we're looking to see what those uh, observations uh, reveal. Now, that was during commissioning, and from the 25th of March, the Keops Consortium has been responsible for operating the telescope and the spacecraft from the Mission uh, Operations Centre at Inter near Madrid, with the Science Operations Centre based in Geneva and the instrument team and instrument manager in Bern. So since mid-April, we've been working in so-called routine operations and observing targets that have been drawn from the pool of targets uh, put together by the science team and through the guest observers programme that I mentioned uh, earlier. Our particular focus of the science team has been on a programme to demonstrate the capabilities of chaos, to showcase them, shall we, shall we say. And we expect to be publishing the first results from these in coming coming months. So I suggest you keep your eye out for this, for some interesting, interesting science.
0: Yeah, it, it sounds like it's going to be one of those missions that really does uh, reveal quite a lot of surprises and, and a lot of... Um... A lot of discoveries, but uh, for for how long will it operate? And is is there any chance of, of of a mission extension, as as kind of often happens with these with these missions?
1: Yeah, the the nominal mission lifetime is three and a half years, and we have a goal to operate uh, for for five years. And and the clock started ticking on these timescales. Uh, at uh, uh, the end of end of march, but we have we use very little fuel in our um, operations, and there are no other consumables for Kops, so in principle, the lifetime of the mission is set by other other factors. Now, the first one is importantly the um, funding which is available to support operations. We have funding for three and a half years, and but we'll need to go back to ESA member states with a well justified request for further funding. And the second is then performance. Now, chaos is in, a, in an orbit above the Earth's uh, the atmosphere, and this exposes it to radiation, which can damage the electronics of both the instrument and the spacecraft, and, of course, of the CCD. When I say damage, this is ageing, which is expected and, and to a large extent under, understood. Now, there are ways we can compensate for this, for the effects of, uh, of aging, but at some point this will impact on the performance that we get, not for quite some, some time yet. So as to how long astronomers will be able to uh, access the data, the data will be available through the mission archive, and on the longer term it will be put on into ESA's legacy archives, so it will be available for a very long time to come. Scientists will have the opportunity to come back to the data to come back to these very high precision uh, light curves to see what's changed what's the same and what they can learn uh, from future knowledge of these of the exoplanets that will be studied
0: um i know we're only uh, at the start of the mission so this is probably quite premature but um is there any are, are there any plans for future exoplanet missions um uh, at esa or are there any any kind of exoplanet missions Outside of ESA, for example, even that you're that you're particularly looking forward to.
1: Yes, uh, as as you may know, the um, a, a science mission takes a long time to to develop from start to to finish. In the case of chaos this, uh, we we first started working. On the mission in around 2000, 2013, 2012, 2013, and we launch now. It's a small mission, so the timescale was reasonably short. So, of course, uh, future missions are already in, under, under development. And KEOPS is the first in a suite of three ESA exoplanet missions. The next one to fly will be PLATO. So it's planetary transits and oscillations of stars. Again, it uses the transit photometry technique. And it's a survey mission, and it'll be dedicated to the study, to finding and studying large numbers of planetary systems with an emphasis on terrestrial-like planets that are in the habitable zone around solar-like stars. It'll also be able to um, study the seismic activity of stars to characterise the host stars and to determine their ages, which are important which is an important parameter which is used to um, to date the planetary system. The target launch date for uh, PLATO is 2026, so a little bit in the future. Then a little bit beyond that is then ARIEL, which stands for Atmospheric Remote Sensing Infrared Exoplanet Large Survey. It's again using the transit technique, but this time using transit spectroscopy. So instead of using broadband, to taking the broadband... Um, light to break that up into narrow uh, narrower bins and to do transit spectroscopy in order to carry out a census of uh, the atmospheres of around a thousand exoplanets of different types and different temperatures. This will enable us to determine what, or start to answer the questions of what planets are made of, how they form and how they evolve. Now this is in the late 2020s, both of these missions or second half of the 2020s. On a much shorter timescale is the, the James Webb Space Telescope, which I mentioned earlier, and this will provide the opportunity to make some very detailed studies of the atmospheres of different types of exoplanets. It's an excellent opportunity for follow-up on some of Chaops's golden targets, and that is much closer uh, in time to, to us than these uh, two uh, men- missions that I mentioned, Plato and Ariel. So it's a very exciting time for exoplanet scientists. We're building on TESS, which is flying now. Of course, KIOPS, which is really getting into its stride, shall we say? So I think it's a matter of watching this space and seeing how things uh, things progress. Very exciting.
0: Indeed, it, it it really really is exciting. It seems like we're on the on the cusp of of, of real discovery, doesn't it? Um, uh, but yeah, uh, thanks very much for speaking to me, Kid, and um. Just, I suppose I just wanted to wish you and the rest of the Chaos team uh, best of luck with the science, and we we'll, we'll look forward to to hearing all about your discoveries.
1: Very good. Thanks a lot for the opportunity to to share um, what we what we know about Chaos and what Chaos will be doing. There will be more information available uh, at links that I'll provide, and people are, of course, welcome to get in touch to to find out more if they're interested.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Newitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify.